I'm really excited to start this new teaching series on grace. I've been thinking about it uh, for, for a while. And uh, I want to start not by telling a story, but giving a statement uh, that Jesus made on the Sermon on the Mount. If you're uh, unfamiliar with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I would argue it's the greatest sermon ever given. It begins in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus gives a pretty overwhelmingly exhausting statement in Matthew 5.20. This is what Jesus has to say to the crowd. He says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly, certainly, guarantee, take to the bank, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven Wow, what a massive statement, which, which leads us to the question that, th think about this, guys. Think about the most faithful person in your life uh, to, to God and to their faith, right? Whoever that person is, whether they're deceased or maybe they're currently living, Jesus is like, you have to be more righteous than that person to begin thinking about getting into the kingdom of heaven, which is pretty exhaustive, right? Which kind of goes, okay, no wonder people won't give Jesus a chance, won't give church a chance, because if that's the bar, if perfection's the bar, then why even entertain the idea? It kind of leads us to the question, well, how good is good enough? Right? How good is good enough for me to, um, I, I wouldn't say it this way, but sort of a, a way we say it, at least in the States, uh, how good is good enough to get into heaven? Although heaven is a reality that is here now, but that's for another sermon series later. What if 99.9% what if was a good enough percentage? What if 99% was a good enough percentage? If that were true, the IRS would lose 2 million documents this year. If 99.9% .9 was good enough, more than 5.5 million cases of soda would go flat. RIP, never forget Diet Coke, the best drink ever, which I haven't touched in a year and a half. If 99.9% .9 was good enough, 12 babies daily would be given to the wrong parents. Parents, especially expected parents, is 99.9% .9 repeating good enough? No, not, not if that kid is your baby, right? And yet, we live in a reality where we kind of give ourselves a break and we say, nah, it's good enough, right? Maybe students, uh, you, you know, your grades have dropped and your parents have been breathing down your neck. Look, you have to get... Uh, you have to get at least uh, a B on this test. Otherwise, your coach is going to kick you off because of your grades. You study hard, you take the test, and uh, you are one point away from getting an A on the test. And you look at it, and you're pretty proud of yourself, and you go, well, hey, that, that's good enough. That was me, although I had friends that weren't satisfied unless they got like 98s to 100s. I don't get that, but that's fine. For me, it was good enough. Or maybe parents, you felt guilty uh, running around and, 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 and maybe you had a meeting at work that ran late and, and your kid just started soccer and you arrived 15 minutes late and you missed your kid's first goal, right? I know, it kind of stabs you at the heart, but, but hey, at least you didn't miss the whole game. You would like to have seen the first goal, but hey, maybe 15 minutes late is good enough. Adults, maybe your, your boss is breathing down your neck and you're in sales and, and uh, he feels like or she feels like you're just not hitting your goals. And you look back and you go, well, over the last month during a pandemic, boss, uh, I hit um, eight months out of the 12 months. I, I, think, that's, I think that's good enough. 
But what if good enough isn't good enough? What if Jesus was telling the truth that until we are morally and spiritually superior than the religious elite of our day, pastors and Bible college professors and the most elite people who actually study Greek and translate the Bible, right? Until we surpass them, we cannot get into heaven. This is why we need grace. We need a series on grace because grace changes everything. I want to give our church sort of a grace challenge, right? Maybe we can get competitive (laughs) over grace. The two challenges I want to give our church. Number one is I want you to read Romans chapters one through eight at least once uh, over the next five weeks. Feel free to grab a pen and a notebook and and write down the the scriptures that you're reading and, and write down the promises God's giving you, write down the sins he warns us to stay away from. And, and I, want, um, I want the scriptures to read you over the next five weeks. I think will help us be more fully present when we come to church, uh, sort of unpacking Romans 1 through 8 over the next couple weeks. Then I want you to memorize Romans 6, verse 15. This is our our, our big idea, the thesis of this series. And here's what Romans six fifteen says. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, you are under grace. And we're gonna say that every week together out loud, okay? So nudge your neighbor if they've kind of fallen asleep. Let's say, let's read Romans six fifteen again. Go ahead and bring that up, back up uh, on the screen, friends. Are you ready? Let's say this together as a church. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. And that's the hope, my friends, that we have in the gospel. When, when Paul begins writing Romans, he's going to address two groups of people, a, a pretty generic group called the Gentiles, uh, who worship uh, false gods, uh, whatever the, you know, the Roman culture, the way of Roman life is, that's kind of what, like, what they're doing with their lives. And then the other group is everyone else, right? The Jews, right? God's perfect chosen people, right? They're born into the right family. They live on the right side of the tracks in the neighborhood, right? And yet Paul is going to come down on both of them, now, Paul begins Romans by uh, uh, introducing himself, saying that he's an apostle, he's seen Jesus, you can trust what he says. He, he wants to be uh, in Rome, he hasn't gone yet, he wants to visit these Christians, he hopes one day to get there. It sounds warm and fuzzy, and you think he's just going to keep going you know, up and to the right. He's going to write the greatest Hallmark card you've ever read at a Walgreens, but verse 18, he drops the hammer on both groups. In chapter 1, verse 18, he first addresses the Gentiles. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In other words, what he's talking about is sort of, everybody has sort of a moral code that they live by. And what Paul's talking about here, I'm going to read verse 21 in a second, is sort of a a heart code. Like, Like whether you're religious or not, whether you're an atheist or the most devout Christ follower, 
most people in a room can probably say, probably not a good idea to end an argument with a neighbor with a loaded gun, right? Most people would say, if you're married, you should probably like stay faithful to that person. There are common um, universal laws God's written on our hearts, like regardless if you're religious or not, Paul is saying that we can all agree to, and that's what the Gentile, that's where the Gentiles are at. Verse 21, for although they know God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they, this is an interesting phrase, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. And then he switches hands and drops the hammer on the Jews. Chapter 2, verse 17. Now you, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, right? You're so perfect in your religion that you're going to help other people, right? If you are a light for those who are in the dark, if you're an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, here it comes, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Are you smoking what you're selling? Are you drinking the Kool-Aid? You who preach against stealing, Jews, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? How's your marriage going? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blaspheming, wow, among the Gentiles because of you. Whoa. So religion pulls people away from God, not closer to God. In Jesus' public ministry, he said of a Jewish sect called the Pharisees, when you guys try to convert somebody, you make them twice the sons of hell as you. You actually convert them closer to hell than you do heaven. So you've got one group, the Gentiles, that know that there's a God, they just don't give a rip. Like, how many people do you know in your life that would identify with that statement? Maybe you do, and that's fine. We're, we're glad that you're here. And then there's this other group, the in crowd, right? The, the preppies, the high school jocks, the captain of the football team, like everything they do just happens. They always get the raises. They have the nice cars. They're God's perfect little boys and girls. And Paul says, hey, how's it going? Those who think they know the Bible left and right. How's your marriage going? Are you worshiping other gods? Are you stealing from other people? Let me ask you this question. What do these verses tell us about how we relate to God? Let me give you three takeaways. There are many, many more. First one is we suppress the truth because we want autonomy. When Paul writes that the Gentiles suppress the truth, I need you to think about, we're so close, guys. We're so close to summer. I need you to think about swimming. Um, I need you to think about what you would do to your friends behind their backs, like what I did to my brothers. When my brother wasn't paying attention, I'd put my hands on his shoulder and shove him under the water. It was great. This is before my brother started to lift, and then he could beat me up. 
and I was laughing with my friends and the other neighborhood kids, and, and you know, uh, Nathan would begin to squirm, and then he would stop a little bit, then squirm. But then I realized what you put underwater actually wants to live. You become pro-life pretty quickly when you're about to die. <laughs> and Nathan did all that he could to come out of the water. And the whole time I'm laughing with my friends, another neighborhood kid. My mom finally wakes up from her nap, bathing in the sun, screaming at me, let your brother up. I'm not doing that. But as I continue to laugh, I, unbeknownst to myself, because I'm having a good time, my grip lessens and lessens. And what I'm trying to suppress underwater, Nathan, boom, pops up. And what I've been trying to hide from other people is right in front of my face, right? And it kind of goes like this. Wow, I can't believe that couple in that church divorced. I thought X, Y, and Z. Well, we want autonomy. <laughs> we know how to put on a face, don't we? We're kind of robotic in that way. We know how to behave for 60, 70 minutes on a Sunday morning. I mean, my parents, I've told you stories about my family, Right? They'll get awards for that. Myself and my brothers get awards for that. We, we know how to act for a certain amount of time in different public forums. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Secondly, we exchange the truth for a lie because we want to be codependent. Now, we wouldn't say that out loud, but it goes like this. When I, when I hear Paul saying that the Gentiles exchange the truth for a lie, I, I kind of go back to like Christmas. I probably have a weird mind. But it's sort of that like you ask for a gift from, you know, your aunt or your uncle that pulled your name out of a hat. This is what we would do. And you, they got what you asked for and, and you got what you asked for and you loved it. But the next day you realized Santa brought you some cash and you got 50 bucks in your wallet. And you're like, you know what? I'm really glad I got this thing, but I want to go back and exchange it for something better. And I'm not going to see my uncle for another six months. Like he, he's not going to know, right? I just don't post it online, kids. Uh, so you go back and you do that and you get something better. But what Paul is talking about here is that people have the gift of the gospel and instead of going back to the mall <laughs> to try and exchange it for something better, as if there could be, they exchange it for something of far less value that actually destroys them. Right? This is why it's it's so difficult sometimes to hand over our struggles and our sins to Christ. Right? Think about the Israelites when they're like running from Pharaoh and they're asking, like, are we in the promised land? Are we in the promised land? Why? Because when you've been a slave under Pharaoh, you tend to act like a slave more than you've been free. When you have been a slave to your sin, you tend to act like someone enslaved to sin other than someone who is actually true, someone who's actually free in, in Christ. We want codependency. We want to lean on something that will fulfill us, even if, it's just, even if it's just to get us through a difficult night. Thirdly, I think uh, we want to feel superior to others. We want to be God's favorite. Um, this is where all my non-Christian friends and media and culture say, why go to church? It's full of a bunch of hypocrites, right? It's almost like Paul is saying, you think you're the religious elite. Why are you taking the Bible and pounding it over people's heads? You know, Paul summarizes very easily in Romans 3.11. If you prefer a short story over a novel, he says this, no one is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. 
don't lie to yourself. I, I can't tell you, uh, ten, 10 years of youth ministry, it's amazing how many parents, this is a guilt trip, parents, right? It's amazing how many parents have never read Romans. Because when we take our kids on retreats and they, uh, and they destroy property at a camp, and I got to call you parents, and you're like, my kid would never do that. They're angels. And we're like, have you read Romans? They're heathens. And so are you, mom, right? The Bible tells the truth. Whether we, want, whether we want to know it, live it, or even come to terms with it, no one's righteous. If given the opportunity, we would go our own way, right? Hello, 1,500 years of history called the Bible on four or five different continents tells us that story, <laughs> that we would rather go and do our own thing. I want to tell you a story to carry us through the rest of this sermon today. There's a photo on the screen of two different doors, all right? And I want you to imagine you're standing in one of those doors. It doesn't matter, just pick a door. It doesn't really matter to me. And I don't mean to bring up a traumatic experience, but I want you to think back to the longest line you've ever stood in, okay? Maybe this is a DMV. Maybe this is a concert. Maybe you have the unfortunate last name like I do, an S, and you're waiting forever for the principal to call your name at graduation, and it's hot. Maybe... Maybe you're that parent uh, on the news as standing outside of a Best Buy in December trying to get you know, a loved one a massive TV for really, really cheap. The longest line you've ever stood in, okay? And as you get closer to one of these doors, you begin hearing a conversation, the line that you're in. Two people look like they've got a pen and some paper and sort of a, uh, a clipboard, and they're asking people questions, and you can't really hear it. But when you get up to the door, they ask you, or they say, welcome to heaven. You're like, what? What, what just, what, am, I, am I dead? <laughs> yep. Welcome to heaven. Heaven's right past this door. Oh, okay, great. Can I, hold on, hold on. To get to heaven through this door, you will have needed to accumulate a thousand points of morality. How good were you? And you'd be thinking, oh man, like, does middle school count? Because I was terrible in middle school. Uh, I went to church as often as I could. I gave 12%. The pastor never knew that, but I gave 12% of my income. I got crazy one year and I went on a mission trip. Um, I, I raised my kids to know the Lord. They, they married spouses who were Christ followers. They're doing, they're doing great. Do they know I'm dead, by the way? Um, I, uh, I, I read my, okay, I, I tried to read my Bible. I tried to read my Bible. Um, I was faithful to my wife, my spouse. Like, uh, how many points is that? And they, they, they look at their clipboard, and they're, they're looking at each other, and they say, well, of the 1,000 points needed, you have only accumulated 325 points. And you look up at the door that you're standing in, and you see this banner over the door that you've stood in line to get through heaven through the law. And you have just realized you've wasted your life on morality, trying to be good enough <laughs> to get into heaven. And then maybe suppose you get really angry because you look at the other door labeled grace and people are having fun, man. It's a party. There, there's, nobody, there's nobody with a clipboard. People are just walking in and high-fiving each other. And there's some, whatever the house band is, is really good. And you really want to go through that door, but you've spent your whole life not trusting in the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Or maybe you said that with your lips, but you spent your whole life trying to be a good person. 
good people don't go to heaven. There's no such thing as good and bad people in the scriptures. There's Christ, the righteous one of God, and then there's, and there's the rest of us, the unrighteous. Now, I know we like to label people good and bad. It's sort of like our sock drawer, sock drawer and underwear drawer. These things go here, put them in, shut it, I can walk away. You're this label, okay, I can judge you, I don't have to deal with you, I can walk away from you. But the scriptures don't teach that there's good people and bad people. There's only Christ and everybody else. Now, you can get to heaven without Jesus. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> ben, you're out of a job if that's true. Well, no, it's true. You don't need Christ to go to heaven. If you want to walk to heaven through the, the door of the law, you have to remember Matthew chapter 5. You have to be completely 100% perfect. And man, I don't know about you guys, but that's exhausting to even think about. And what I'd like to do with our time left is talk about the two approaches uh, that we take of entering or trying to look at our faith through a law lens and through uh, the lens of grace or the door of grace. So here's the first one, friends. The law says, do this and you will live. Romans 2, 7 through 11, Paul writes, those who persist by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. The law wants you to believe. You don't have to go to church that much. Come on, give me a break. Just watch it online. You have to read your Bible that much, right? You don't have to do all these things. You know, it's interesting that, um, that uh, for some of the concentration camps, there would be a sign that the Jews would, would read if they knew German. And I'm going to butcher this. I don't know German, so I apologize in advance. But it's something like Arbuck Mcfry, right? Which is like, in German, it's work will set you free. This false idea that if you work hard enough, Hitler will let you go. That's never been true of Hitler, that's never been true of Pharaoh, and that's never been true of Satan. And yet, we believe that if we continually try and do good works, then we will live with God forever. That's not the gospel, friends. That's religion. The law says, do this and you will live, but the way of grace says, Jesus did all of this so you can live in 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul writes, He, Jesus, for he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Jesus did all of the work for you on your behalf. The way of the law says, work yourself to death, trying to behave well. Romans 3.19-20, Paul writes, For now we know that whatever the law says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. What Paul is getting at is that the point of the law, right, is to show us that we're never going to be good enough. We can't be perfect. That the law exposes us for who we are. It exposes our sin. It exposes our sin nature. Now, it's not, the Bible doesn't exist to beat us up. It tells us there's a way out. It's supposed to point us to the gospel. 
The law in and of itself is supposed to show us that we actually need grace. We need rescue, we need saving, and we need redemption. The way of grace says Jesus behaved his way onto the cross because we couldn't obey our way into heaven. Now, here's what I mean by that. Jesus behaved his way onto the cross, meaning he lived the perfect sinless life that the law requires us to live. He did that for you on your behalf. So take a deep breath right now. You don't have to make things happen in your life. You don't have to impress God with how good you are and how many good things that you do. He's already knocked out about you because you've trusted his son. Which is why Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it is by grace you have been saved. Not the law, not your church attendance, not your ability to know the scriptures in and out, not that you gave 12% and God's going to overlook some sin. That's not the gospel. It, you've been saved by grace, which what? What is the work of grace? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You've been saved through faith. Now, here's something that I hear all the time as a pastor, especially when people are struggling or someone gets a cancer diagnosis or it's a difficult season. Well, just pray more and have more faith. That is like the most demonic thing anyone can say. Look, I've said it too, okay? That is not the gospel. That is religion. You cannot have more faith. Our faith does not save us. The object of our faith saves us. Who or what is the object of our faith? It's Christ himself. Because he died the death that we should have died, lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, and rose again three days later. Now, notice what Paul, how he ends this. This is not from yourself. It's a gift from God, not by your works so that no one can boast. You see, religion will lead people down two paths of feelings, pride or despair. Pride in the sense of like, look how religious I am. Look how amazing I am. I don't give online. I give in $100 bills so people can see how generous I am, right? Right? Exactly. Uh, but that's not the way of the gospel. But the way of religion wants you to be cocky, wants you to be arrogant. But it'll also lead you down a path of despair, which Paul has already talked about. Oh, man, I, I am. I'm not good enough. Which, if taken the wrong way, religion can really beat you up. But the point of the law is not to beat you into the ground saying you're not good enough. The point of the law, the point of the scriptures is to point you to the one who is good enough, who was perfect and sinless on your behalf. This is a free gift for you. Not that you can brag on how awesome you are, but that you can brag on how awesome your God is. Let me give you two more before I wrap up. The law is all about self-reliance. Uh, Max Lucado, as a Christian author, pastor, wrote this in his book, simply titled Grace. Attempts at self-salvation guarantee nothing but exhaustion. Whoa. How many of you can identify with that? How many of you would say, I know a person in my life that needs to hear that, that they've been exhausting themselves trying to make life happen, trying to be their own savior. Hebrews uh, 13.9 says, your heart should be strengthened by God's grace, not by obeying rules. 
How many of your friends and family and coworkers think that religion is all about who can obey the most rules before they die? That's not the gospel, friends. If the law is all about self-reliance, the way of grace is all about dependency. Uh, let me close out by reading Romans 1.16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul says, it's not my job to save you. The work of the gospel is not up to me. It's my job to teach you that through the death, burial, and resurrection, you can receive the grace of God. But it's up to you and it's up to the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin and for you to be humble enough to accept the work of the cross in the empty tomb. I intentionally, at the beginning of the message, I intentionally left out a verse in Matthew chapter 5 that I want to read for you right now. And this is how I want to close this message. Matthew 5, 17, and then I'll read 20. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but what? To fulfill them. To fulfill them, church. That you don't have to live a despairing life thinking that you're not good enough. And then he says, verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't worry, Jesus says, about being perfect. I am the perfect law, the Torah, all 613 commandments of the first five books of your Bible. I am the Torah, the law in flesh, making myself available to you to be broken on the cross so that I may take your sin and you may take my righteousness. How good is good enough? Well, the answer is Christ, who was perfect, without blemish, and died the death that we should have died, paid the debt that we couldn't pay, and rose again three days later. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, too many people think that church and Jesus and religion is all about being a good person. Just as long as you follow the golden rule, you'll make it into heaven. That's blasphemous. The purpose of our faith is not to be good people, because we're not. The law has, always told, has already told us that. The purpose of our faith is to grow in the gospel. Church, we are not under the law. We are under the grace of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, if you have your communion uh, with you, I'd encourage you to take it out as we're going to celebrate communion together as a church love for you to grab some if you're watching online at home. And uh, as you take communion, I, I want to challenge you that communion could be one of two invitations for you. Maybe if you identify with a Gentile, like maybe you'd say like, I, I kind of think there's a God. I'm not really sure. Honestly, Ben, I don't really think about it that much. Uh, maybe this is an invitation for you to repent of your sin and talk to Jesus for the first time openly and honestly. Right? Without any theatrics or you trying to impress him, but just openly and honestly talk to him about where you're at. And then you can take the bread and juice. Or maybe in a moment of honesty, you'd say, Ben, I don't really want to admit this, but I identify myself more with the Jews. I, I, I find myself to be pretty judgmental of other people, people that don't look like me, vote like me, act like me, live the way that I live. I, I tend to be pretty judgmental. And so maybe for you, 
if you identify with that group of people, it's an opportunity to repent, not of your sin, but of your religiousness that is pulling people closer to hell than it is heaven. This time is for you, for you to spend time with the Lord. Invite him to investigate your heart. And may you come to realize that we'll never be good enough to win the favor of God. And that's why he sent his son, Jesus, who would die on the cross in our place for our sin and rise again three days later. And this is why, church, grace changes everything. We are not under the law. We are under grace. Let's eat and drink together. Jesus, thank you so much for this beautiful truth that you call us to, I think whether people are religious or not, know that one of the reasons why Jesus died was because of our sin. But this, this, this morning, this text, also another reason why you went to the cross is because we're too religious. We trust our behavior more than we trust you. We'd rather just focus on being good and doing good things than resting in your gospel. Thank you, God, for this beautiful truth that we don't have to live under the hammer of the law. That we're, we're going to live with the fact that you've accumulated all of the morality points that we could not get on our own. And we're going to choose to walk the way of grace. May we invite someone to consider that this week. Someone that we know in our circle that thinks religion is for a bunch of hypocrites or for just people just trying to be good moral gym, gymnastics, right? Gymnasts. God, there, there are people that desperately need your grace. May we be the kind of church that leaves this place and invites our friends, our neighbors, and coworkers to journey towards you under your grace. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.